0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in today for Mike Simpson.
1: And we, of course, are here to talk about what else the global coronavirus pandemic.
2: Kind of hence the name.
1: That's the, and, and that's why we do it every day, and it's cleverly called Coronavirus Daily.
2: And we'd change the name if we'd only do it <laughs> once a week. You know, we've been told the best way to stop this virus is to lock down and stay home. Businesses, movie theaters, restaurants, bars, gyms, everything across the country closed, at least for a while. Sports were canceled. Now they're back, but with many stadiums empty.
1: So I'm betting that probably, I don't know, 100% of you out there don't like it, right? I mean, who who wants a lockdown?
2: I don't like it. No
1: no one likes it. But here's the thing. About 6,000 scientists, 6,000, are now saying... There's a better way.
2: Is this like four out of five dentists choose (laughs) Trident or something? Yeah.
1: I never found any of them who actually would admit to that, by the way.
2: No. And in a country of eight billion doctors, is 6,000 really a giant number?
1: Well, we'll talk to them and we will find out.
2: We'll also go back in time to the 1900s to look at how schools then dealt with keeping kids safe from a serious disease and how we can apply those lessons to getting kids back to school today,
1: and we will also, by the way, look into how small businesses are surviving in this very sluggish—and that's that's really to to underplay it—sluggish economy. And if they make it without stimulus help,
2: let's start with those scientists who say they have a better plan for dealing with COVID. They've signed a quote anti-lockdown petition. Charles, earlier today, you and Rob Archer talked to. Dr J Bhattacharya he organized the petition is also the director of the center on the demography and economics of health and aging at Stanford medical school you asked him about the herd immunity and the need to change course
3: yeah so i think the the problem is the word herd immunity uh, it has these negative connotations uh, but it's 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 not a strategy of of, of either 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 way it, it's a, it's a biological fact the real issue is what are the costs of the lockdowns, who faces those costs, and what are we gaining from them? Right. So uh, for instance, uh, we, uh, we know that there's a thousand-fold difference in the risk of dying if you get infected from people who are younger versus older. Younger people face more risk from the seasonal flu than they do from, from COVID-19 infection. Um, more, in, fact, in fact, children, uh, more children have died from the seasonal flu this year than from coronavirus. Uh, on the other hand, if you're older, there's a substantial you know three, four, five percent chance of dying if you do get infected. We should take advantage of that fact. Um, we can protect the vulnerable, the people who have face a risk if they if they're infected uh, work, spend all of our resources on that and and ins- and let everybody else who faces very little risk from uh, infection free so that they can go about their go about their normal lives. instead what we've done is we've decided uh, to, Impose enormous costs on the people who face very little risk. Uh, you know, the, the, and not just economic costs, health costs. Um, at, at, while at the same time, in many places, we've exposed the vulnerable. We've uh, in, in nursing homes and other places. Uh, this is the exact opposite of the right policy. Uh, the right policy says let's let lift the lockdowns on people who don't face very much risk, and for people who face a high risk, work very hard to protect them.
0: Uh, Let me dig into the petition just a little bit. Uh, Over 6,000 scientists, uh, can you give us a rundown of of these scientists, how many have expertise that would touch on infectious diseases, uh, etc.? What kind of fields of science are we talking about here?
3: I mean, the, the the petition is growing, I think, uh, so it's hard for me to keep track uh, in, in any detailed way. I mean, we just released it three days ago, and we, we've seen there's been an enormous amount of uh, interest in it, both from the general public and also from the scientific community. Um, f- from the, the co-signers, uh, I have expertise in, in infectious disease epidemiology as well as a PhD in economics and an MD. Uh, one of the co-signers, uh, Dr. Sinatra Gupta, is a, is, a, is a is the world's top... Mathematical epidemiologist, and she designs vaccines for a living um, for, for the flu. And uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, uh, Martin Kulldorff, who signed it as a Harvard professor, is, is has designed house safety protocols for vaccines for a very long time. Um, he's the sort of the architect of the statistical apparatus we use to do that. So people with a lot of expertise both have signed. I mean, obviously written it, but also have signed it. Uh, I mean, I think you can very safely say thousands of people epidemiology with expertise in infectious disease and uh, and and in medicine, have, have have signed on because, you know, the strategy that we're proposing is not a radical one. This is the strategy that was uh, that we've used to control many, many, many other infectious diseases. This was in the pandemic planning. This was the, the strategy that people uh, had before COVID nineteen hit. The lockdown strategy we've been impl- implementing is, is is a radical departure from those 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 plans that we had. Prior to COVID. OK, I got deal.
1: that. But, but but let me let me try to, to get even to be a little bit more specific about how you and the others on the petition envision this working. What, what would it actually when you say let everybody who is not going to be potentially severely infected go about their lives and then safeguard the others? What what does that actually mean?
3: So I, I can give you some concrete examples. So, sure. for instance, in, in nursing homes, for instance, uh, you you should use testing resources on staff who have not previously been infected and are, and are not immune. Um, if, if staff work in multiple nursing homes, they get tested multiple times. Um, if you are visiting a nursing home, you, you, you require a test. If you, if you, have, you have isolation rooms um, uh, and, and places with sort of a COVID-only COVID only wards or whatnot in, in, in nursing homes, you, you absolutely have to have that. I mean, I think you use um, all of those kinds of ideas to protect nursing homes. It's a concrete, discrete thing that we didn't do in the early days of the epidemic. For someone living in a, a multi-generational household where young and old live alike, and you have a high community spread, you make available hotel rooms or uh, uh, other living facilities so that for for while the, the, the disease is spreading uh, in the population, um, the, the older people can live apart. Um, and then when the disease has spreading or, or, or the disease spread is slowed down or, 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 uh, or uh, you know, decreased, then they can come back home. Uh, it lasts for only a little while as opposed to the, the, the indefinite lockdown we currently have. Um, I think uh, there are ideas like that where you, you can use the resources that we have been using and, and considerable resources uh, and creativity to address the needs of the vulnerable so they don't get exposed to the disease.
1: Schools and public health officials, they are working to keep kids safe from the coronavirus. Kids are, you know, socially distanced. Uh, They're wearing masks in many classrooms. Adapting to disease is nothing new, though, for schools.
2: So like Huey Lewis, let's climb into the time machine and go back in time. Tuberculosis was a huge problem in the 1900s. People dealt with it by having open-air schools. So what can we learn from that today? KYW in Philadelphia's Charlotte Reese talked to Dr. Cindy Connolly, professor of the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, about similarities and differences in how we fight disease both now and 100 years ago.
4: The pediatric piece is, to me, the most interesting because, in addition to being a historian, I'm also a pediatric nurse. And so when I read about this idea, of course, of having kids considered sickly, having them outside all the time, that sounded really counterintuitive to what um, we suggest today for sick kids. So until the early 20th century, the years from 5 to 15, prime school years, was considered a golden age of immunity to tuberculosis. Most people who died of TB were between the ages of 15 to 34. And so very few kids had active tuberculosis. But a couple of scientific revelations in the first decade of the 20th century completely upended that and changed the whole anti-tuberculosis movement away from treating disease in adults to sort of the best way of preventing disease to be preventing it in kids. And, and here were those inventions. Number one, a number of autopsies by French and German scientists in about 1902, 1903, found that all of these children who had died from presumably not of tuberculosis, so maybe they died because they were hit by a streetcar or because they had diphtheria, but they were actually infected with tuberculosis. So that was a shock to people. And so the idea then became that perhaps a lot of people are, you know, that children are infected, everybody is infected, the thought was, but that kids don't, don't become sick until they're adults. What really changed the anti-tuberculosis movement was an Austrian pediatrician by the name of Clemens von Pirquet, who invented the first tuberculin screening test that most of us get today, the needle under our skin to see if we react to tuberculin. And so he took an orphan, um, and again, a very different era in terms of medical experimentation. And he injected that infant with Tuberculin, which is a byproduct of tubercle bacilli culture, and he noted that um, that the child's uh, you had a a red swelling around where he had injected. It's really a pivotal year because 1908 the United States hosts a big international conference on tuberculosis in Washington. It's really American tuberculosis science coming of age. It's also in 1908, you probably um, have seen that the first open air school opens in Providence, Rhode Island. And two female physicians, who had been educated at Johns Hopkins, set up this open-air school with private funds for the children in the city whose parents had tuberculosis, who they themselves were poor, malnourished, almost all of whom lived in tenements or in very crowded circumstances. And then Boston picked up the idea. Rochester, New York, and by 1911 or 1912, we had the very first one in Philadelphia. It was actually in a school that is still standing, the McCall School, which is on South 7th Street, a Philadelphia pediatrician he was the director of medical inspection of public schools of Philadelphia. And he talks about this brand new building and this brand new school that's being built in a crowded part of the city, the McCall School. And he says, right as this book is being written, and so the book is published in 1913. He's probably writing it in 1911, 1912. And, uh, and then he also talks about another other." open window school, meaning so, and the McCall School, open air school, was on the roof of this new building. And then open window, meaning probably one wall of windows, was built in the Jackson School, which is still there in South Philly, and in the Italian section. So that would have been, what he says is the Italian section. So that would have been a, a very poor immigrant section of Philadelphia then. And so those are the first ones in
5: Built, wow. Um, and, and you just kind of explained it a little bit, but open air, you know, we think maybe kids sitting in a picnic table, they're absolutely outside, but how yes. far off from that is like what they actually looked like?
4: So it's not far off at all. So they would be outside and I can, I have pictures of Kids playing outside in like their underwear in the winter with snowball fights because the thought was they wanted to get them as much sun exposure as possible, heliotherapy, as much fresh air as possible. In the open-air school, they also had extended rest periods. They got a lot of food, so they got fed a lot of food. They rested, then they did a little bit of school. Then the nurse, who was either a school nurse... Or assigned by the health department or the local private tuberculosis aid society would take their temperature, would monitor their weight, would monitor their exercise, because those were considered the medical therapeutics of the, the time. So I always looked at it as, since the best treatment for tuberculosis until antibiotics was considered fresh air therapy and rest, that these physicians and scientists and nurses were reasoning that the best prevention would be to take these um, infected children or at-risk children and give them in school the sort of the treatment for TB during the school day in hopes that that would help build their resistance, prevent them from getting TB. And so they would wear what they call little Eskimo suits that look to me like sleeping bags with I don't know if you've seen that they would wear mittens and they would sit outside at desks and their teachers, most of the teachers and the nurses and the doctors providing tuberculosis care in this era had themselves had had TB, which is. And so this was the only job they could get. No, nobody wanted to be taken care of by a nurse or a doctor who had tuberculosis. And so they were often the doc- they were usually the doctors and nurses staffing tuberculosis sanatoriums, tuberculosis wards. And they had a particular interest, obviously, in it because they themselves had suffered from the the disease. Same with teachers. Coming up
1: after this short break, will small businesses survive in the post-pandemic world? Small businesses are considered the cornerstone of the American economy, and, you know, they've been getting hit Really hard uh, with the economy slowing down and the uh, pandemic. It's unclear if they will get any help from the government in the form of a stimulus, at least anytime soon.
2: So let's go right to, you know, a couple of small business owners to get their take. Emily Chan owns Jen Chan Supper Club in Atlanta, Georgia. Kim Pence owns Hotville Chicken in Los Angeles. Charles, you and Rob ask them about how they're holding up and how it's going for their business and the people who work for them. You started with Emily.
6: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we've been hanging on. I, um, I really don't. There's been um, more weeks than I can count on my fingers um, throughout the past six months where I've thought I couldn't hang on. Uh, we we were only open for six months when the pandemic hit and the pandemic has lasted six months. It is not anything I uh, imagined would happen. Um, somehow little tiny uh, miracles and graces keep coming our way. Um, you know, we, we did finally get the PPP. That took forever and ever and ever, um, and then that ran out very quickly because it was based on, you know, we weren't open long enough to have a big payroll, so it was based on that prior payroll um, time frame. And then we've, you know, we've just borrowed money. That's that's what we've done. I'll be very transparent. We've borrowed money to stay open. we set up a GoFundMe to try to renegotiate with our landlord to get um, a lower rent because our negotiated rent was basically up, and we were told, get out by October 1st, or, you know, that's it. So we got to go fund me and um, that saved us this time. So we're just, that's, that's it. That's all I can say is little tiny uh, rescue efforts keep keeping us afloat.
0: That's, uh, yeah, I can barely even imagine what that must feel like. Uh, Kim uh, Prince the, uh, of uh, Hotville Chicken in the Crenshaw neighborhood of L.A. Uh, how are you, I'm sure you're going through a lot of the same problems. And, and you know, the first thought I have is that, it's got to feel hopeless at times. How do you deal with that, uh, that sense of uh, helplessness?
5: Yeah, well, thank you. I, I can totally empathize with Emily. Um, we opened up three months to the date that, like, right before the pandemic started, we had been open for three months. And much like Emily just shared, we, that feeling of, that overwhelming feeling of, you don't know how you're going to make it to tomorrow uh, are we going to be open tomorrow? And your employees are asking, Do I come to work tomorrow? That's how it's been for Hotville Chicken. Uh, but those little little miracles, uh, just a, even the same thing that Emily just said those little miracles that just come along the way, uh, those those kinfolk, our customers, they come through regularly, uh, big orders that automatically, you know, the phone rings, the email comes through, and you got the council member on the line and they need you to see a hundred seniors uh, projects like that, that help us actually reach back into the community and recognize that there are some populations out there that are vulnerable and have a need. Uh, I'm glad that high chicken was always giving before the pandemic. So it didn't take the pandemic to teach us to give, but um, it's been a, a communal effort that, Keeps hope alive for us, and uh, we've been able to stay afloat. PPP came too late. Uh, uh, We had to just keep the doors open because closing was not an option. And um, every day that we're open, uh, six days a week, we are frying chicken like crazy, and they're just going out the door.
0: (laughs) I can smell it over the phone. That's good. Yeah,
5: that's all I endeavor to do is just keep frying chicken as long as I can keep breathing. We're gonna keep frying chicken.
1: Emily. do you put the finger of blame on any one or, or any group of people in particular, or do you think there is more than enough blame to go around, or do you blame no one?
6: I, I think if we listen to the millions of health professionals who told us and have been screaming this from the very beginning, um, that there were very simple things, that, steps that we had to take and things we had to do, um, you know, it's been very, very clear that the, the CDC, the, even our Department of Health here in Georgia, every single person has said very clearly, if we follow these steps, we're not going to be in this for as long. We, this didn't have to happen <laughs> the way that it has happened. We didn't have to be here for as long. But everyone lifted up those restrictions way too early. Believe me, I wanted to reopen, but we, we still aren't open and we're not going to. It's not safe yet. Um, but the fact that we, we still have, I mean, our governor sued our mayor over a mask mandate. I, I can't even fathom the, the um, negligence that has happened, um, ignoring science and ignoring what, and that, that's to our economic detriment. Uh, this thing has lasted way longer than it should have. Um, we already know that we're going to go into winter. Um, that, you know, we may bypass the flu season, I, I'm hearing, because of the people who are wearing masks. Um, you know, everyone, the people who are wearing masks and are being safe—that's fantastic. But going into closed spaces in the winter time, if we continue to stay open like this, we're all just going to end up right shut back down again. Um, and winter—you know—just speaking a little bit about the restaurant industry, our biggest fear right now, going into winter, is that like, what are we going to do without outdoor dining? Um, you know, buying a bunch of heaters—that's, you know, that's great. Let's buy a bunch of heaters and put them outside the big expense to keep those things running.
0: Kim, let, let's talk to you a little bit uh, for a minute. We we were hearing from uh, Emily in Atlanta that, uh, you know, uh, cold weather is coming, so when you're forced to serve your, your uh, diners outdoors, that might tend to be a problem, and how many heaters can you put up, especially if you get a really bad cold snap. Here in California, we do get inclement weather from time to time. There might be some rainstorms. We recently had some heat waves where some places were getting up to 112 degrees. Uh, when you got the hot weather, did that really Affect you in getting some diners who were willing to sit outdoors?
5: Um, yeah, they like to eat hot chicken in hot weather out here. I'm learning. Um, coming from Nashville, it's real humid and sticky, but <laughs> out here the dry heat. Of, of course, fortunate for us, Hot Little Chicken has a covered patio, nice little breezeway that comes through there, so we get some nice little breezes, and then it's near a driveway where the cars and the trucks that pass by. So what what was the wind? (laughs) So,
1: Kim, what what was hotter, the weather or the chicken?
5: It was the chicken that's hotter. So I would always go out there with lots of pitchers of ice water to make sure that people are cooling themselves down. But they they like that intense heat, sitting in the heat, sweating. Um,
1: Yeah, but, you know, know, sitting in the heat is one thing. uh, But as you know, we can and hopefully we will get rain. uh, And sometimes that rain can be you know, a lot and can be pretty yeah. heavy and can last for quite a number of days. What happens to you then when it isn't a question of them sitting, you know, in the heat and enjoying the chicken, but trying to not get, you know, drenched?
5: Yeah, well, we, we've we got, a, when COVID hit and they shut down indoor dining, we pivoted. We didn't have delivery platform, which we do have now. Uh, we had takeout services now. And that volume is it has been good. Uh, It's not what it used to be prior to March 2020, but it's got us to where we can stay afloat, we can keep payroll done, we don't have to borrow too much or anything like that. However, I'm concerned about the winter season. Our winters here are much milder than what I know Emily has experienced in Atlanta coming from the south. I I completely understand how that is with ice storms and things like that. But uh, we have a lot of people who just do delivery and pickup. So I'm hoping that'll sustain us, and we're we're planning on riding this out. But I'm not opening my dining room. Uh, they did it. I don't want to see uh, a shutdown again. Things are supposed to open up again as of today in in Los Angeles um, with mall indoor shopping malls and and whatnot. But uh, I don't have any intentions on opening up the indoor dining when they do allow it to happen because you got to be ready. Uh, there's a lot of protocols that are, are necessary. And then we also want to keep ourselves safe. Uh, having experienced the COVID test on a couple of occasions myself recently, um, I don't want to see any of my staff get ill. Um, That's for the safety of our customers as well. So uh, we're just going to keep frying chicken the way we've been doing it. Uh, people are complaining about brown grease bags going out the door. They're eating it in the parking lot. They're turning the parking lot into nice little tailgate sometimes. And we're going to keep doing it that way.
1: I'm sure Emily's place in Atlanta is really super, but the chicken sounds really good.
2: The Her place, hot-filled chicken, yeah, it in LA, does. sounds yeah. awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel badly, I have to admit, for chickens, but it sounds great.
2: Listen, you know, somebody's got to take a hit for the team, right? <laughs> Roommates have found a way to keep busy with each other during the pandemic. I bet and they yes, have. <laughs> it's exactly the way you're thinking.
1: Yeah, I am.
2: You know, a survey by Match.com found more of them are now, quote, hooking up than ever before. Hmm. One in four singles between the ages of 18 and 98. Now, by the way, the 18-year-olds are not hooking up with the 98-year-olds.
1: Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> you know,
2: according to the study, apparently it is age-appropriate hooking up. Uh-huh. But one in four have had sex with a non-romantic roommate. Hmm. Listen, when you're 98, There's no such thing as a romantic roommate. Who has time for that when you're 98? Younger adults are the most open to this. Gee, that may be the most startling thing that came out of this study, with 46% of those under 23 years old saying they slept with their, quote, non-romantic roommate. Scientists say... This type of behaviorship can happen due to unusual environmental factors. Is that what they're calling it? Like being locked down with someone for long periods while not seeing anybody else.
1: So how does that, I mean, if you had like a you know fly on the wall, I mean, what would you hear? Like, uh, hey, Gramps, move over. Or, what, what do you hear?
2: I don't know. When I was between 18 and 23, they just called it college.
1: <laughs> I, I'm still 18 to 98. Okay.
2: Listen, you know? if you're 99, you couldn't get into this study, apparently, but I want to know what they're doing as well. Maybe they're not. Maybe at 98, the hooking up stops. <laughs> you know, it's just a shift. You can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com, the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your podcast. And don't forget, please subscribe to this podcast, Coronavirus Daily, today.
1: And if you're 98, here's to you.
2: God bless you.
1: <laughs>